This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at LeBanks St. Sampson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. I've been coming to Delancey for many years, over the years, and I've got to tell you something. I don't think I've ever felt the atmosphere of the presence of God like I have this morning. It's very, very precious and very, very sweet and a real sense of God in the worship time, in testimony time and just in the whole atmosphere. And that's something you should guard very closely because we have an enemy who would want to destroy that and spoil that and affect that and just disrupt the whole atmosphere and we need just to pray into that that God will keep going further forward and that you rise higher and higher, and that you, you, you came to a place where you've never been. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. You reach a place where you've never been before. We thank God for everything that has happened in the past, and for all the good times that many of you have been around for many, many years, and you can thank God for the whole journey. But let's go to a place where you've never been, and just touch heaven and change earth, as we were saying yesterday in, in the leadership morning. John, thanks for the invitation. You and Angie have been great hosts this weekend. Really appreciate that and all that you've done to make this a very special time. And thanks for the invite. I'd come here every week, to be honest. Um, I love Guernsey. I love the atmosphere of the islands. How can you come to church without feeling blessed? You drive by the sea and look at the boats. Good grief. Isn't that something that will just lift you a little and inspire you and give you a real sense of the presence of God? And Carol and I have really enjoyed being back again on the island and Thanks for the invitation. Uh, When can we come again? (laughs) Anytime. The answer is yes. Will you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8? I've been thinking as we've been worshipping the Lord that God wants to say something maybe a little different this morning and maybe just a little bit strange in some ways. But I want to bring a word to you that maybe will just take you one step further and bring you to a place, maybe you're on a journey to a place where you've, you've never been. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8. I'll keep talking till you find the book of Nehemiah. Did I say Jeremiah? <laughs> Could you just run the take back for a... <laughs> Nehemiah. Sorry, Nehemiah 8. And I'll give you even longer now to find that. You can cheat, you can go to the beginning of the Bible, look up the page number, that's dead easy. Nehemiah 8 and verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Many of you have seen little plaques on the wall as you go into Christian homes. And very often that text is there, Nehemiah 8 verse 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's taken out of a little context out of the scripture, but it makes a nice plaque on the wall, it makes a nice theme. People walking into a home see the little plaque and they think to themselves, the joy of the Lord is here and it's our strength. And it just sort of registers and just 
affects us a little as we see the plaque and we see the words. But it came at a very significant time. It's not just a promise to hang on the wall and to make people feel good as they enter your home. It's more than that, it's a command. And it's a prophetic word. And it came at a very significant time in Israel's history. And I want to look at this scripture just in three different ways. First of all, in the historical context. There's always a reason why God says something. God doesn't say things haphazardly. He doesn't say things out of context. He doesn't say things just for the sake of filling up the scripture. God has a reason for saying everything. And there was a historical moment in the life and the work of Israel that was very, very important. They had been in captivity. For many years, they had been in Babylon. And the scripture says they hung up their harps on the willow tree and they couldn't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And they felt rejected and they felt lost and abandoned. They felt as if they were far from home, far from God, and a whole generation would pass before they would actually see the lights of Jerusalem again. They'd lost their home, city had been ransacked, the whole of their history had been wiped out in one fell swoop by the Babylonians. Many of them had been killed, some had been dragged off into slavery, and they sat down by the waters of Babylon and they wept. And there would be a generation would pass before they would return. Years would go by. People would live and die in captivity. Babies would be born in captivity, not knowing their home, not knowing their ancestry, not knowing their pedigree. And there was all this going on in the life and shape of Israel. And they were a very desolate people. And then God turned the captivity of Zion. And they were like them that laughed. And then was our mouth filled with singing. And they began to think about going home. And it was Ezra and Nehemiah, the priest and the prophet, who gathered them together and began a march from Babylon all the way across the Middle East, back home. We've seen pictures of refugees recently coming out of different parts of Africa. And we've watched the thousands of them as they've made their way to their promised land, which is Europe. And they've tried to get here, thousands of them, desolate people, refugees, that was Israel, coming out of bondage, coming out of slavery, coming out of a place of abandonment and lostness. They were making their way back home. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, there was nothing left. It was a rubble of bricks, no walls, no houses, no temple. Everything had been ransacked, everything had been lost. There was no hope and no future. And it was Nehemiah and Ezra who began to rebuild the walls. And they gathered the people together. And it says that they worked from the beginning of the day till the end of the day, the rising of the sun until the stars shone. And they began to rebuild. They had much opposition. There were certain men called Sanballat and Tobiah who wrecked their enthusiasm, taunted them, mocked them constantly, tried to frustrate them, and they were real agitators of evil. But they kept working. And they built a new city. And they built new houses. And they gathered the people together very often to worship and to thank God and to praise him for bringing them back home and giving them a new land. And they began just to establish a nation, building a nation, building a city, building the walls. And on one occasion, somebody in the ruins discovered the scroll of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The scroll of the law. 
And they discovered this in the dusty heap of a, of a building site. They discovered the, the scriptures and they brought it out and they began to read it. And it brought a sense of God into the midst. Before that, they felt abandoned. Before that, they felt lost. They'd missed God in the whole of the aspect of their journey. And now they discovered that God loved them and that there was someone who cared and someone who had given laws to live by and someone who had fashioned their destiny and someone who had planned it all. And they began to realize that God was in total control of everything. And Ezra builds a platform, a very high wooden platform, and he climbs to the top of the platform. And Nehemiah and the Levites had gathered all the people together and they began to read the scriptures from creation, right the way through Abraham and through Moses. They began to read the word of God to the people and there was this incredible outbreak of sobbing as the people realized that God was there all the time. In the midst of captivity, in the midst of loneliness and an abandonment, God was there. God was shaping their destiny. God had never failed them. And they began to realize afresh that through it all, God was their hope and their rock and their refuge. And they began to sob. And it was Nehemiah who stood up and said, Stop crying. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing. This day is sacred. The joy of the Lord is your strength. A prophetic word into the sorrow. A prophetic word into the heartache. A prophetic word to a new nation. John mentioned I was a regional superintendent for many, many years and I used to travel about 50,000 miles a year. And I used to travel from church to church, meeting to meeting, leaders to leaders, Sunday by Sunday. And the years were going by and we used to get a holiday and now and again and we used to do things together. But there were times when it was just meeting, meeting, meeting. That's all it was. The diary was full, the agenda was full and I was just travelling from one place to another and sometimes those meetings weren't easy, putting things right, calming troubles and pouring oil on difficulties and there were times when it was just one of those times when everything seemed to be melting up and becoming busy, busier and busier. I remember driving up a, a motorway on one occasion thinking to myself, I wish I had time for me. I seem to have time for everybody else All the churches, all the people, all the leaders, all the phone calls, all the agendas, I've got time for all of that. Wouldn't it be nice if I had time for me? And I began to feel a little bit selfish. And I'm driving along and I'm processing this thought and I'm rather enjoying it, to be honest. Wouldn't it be nice if I had a little bit of time for me? Wouldn't it be nice if circumstances were such that I could stop doing meetings and get out of this agenda business and get away from all of these troubles and trials and just do something for me. So I'm keeping driving and this is rising in my spirit and I'm thinking, this is nice, I'm going to become selfish. I'm going to be changing my lifestyle. I'm going to do something for me. And so I began to plan all this in my mind and by the time I got to my destination, I had put selfishness as a kind of New Testament gift. You know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, selfishness. And I got to a place where I really enjoyed the idea that I'm going to do something for me. So I did the meeting, drove all the way home, came in the front door, said to Carol, I'm going to do something for me. I'm going to change my lifestyle. 
I'm going to stop all this running around, doing all these meetings. I'm going to choose something for me. And she said, very good. Like what? Well, I hadn't got to that level. I just got to the selfish bit and I was enjoying that, but I hadn't got to the idea of the destination. What would I do? Now, I've always loved the sea. I've always loved boats. I've always loved fishing. I've always loved travelling on water. And I thought to myself, why don't I do something about boats? So I got on the internet and I found there was a day skipper's course, a captain's course, where you would go back to night school. I was up after all these years. Go back to night school and study and get a certificate and pass my captain's course, which would be all sorts of uh, seafaring uh, importance and navigation and charting compasses and courses and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, I'm going to enrol and go back to school. So I did for a whole year. I did something for me. I scrapped my Thursday night meetings. Whatever I was doing on Thursday, I would race to the college and I would get in just on time. And I sat through a whole year of day skippering. And I got a certificate. Come on. That's, that's where you say praise God or hallelujah or something. I got a certificate and I passed the course. It was difficult. I'd never done geometry for years. Hated school all through the years. Never done all that kind of thing and had to go back and relearn everything. But I passed the course. It took a whole year of my time on a Thursday evening and I got a certificate and I put it on the wall and got all the books and the skipper who was teaching us, was an amazing guy, an old sea dog. And he used to have all these important things to say and he would give us all the descriptions and the teaching and he'd go through everything and the two hours of a, of a Thursday evening were very, very interesting. And then he had one line at the end. And before you left, he would throw out this important thing and he would say, right at the end, something that would captivate your attention and make you think. It was a classic way he did it. Right at the end, and he would throw out this line. And on one occasion, he said, Don't forget, before you leave harbour, set your waypoints. Chart your course. And then he left it. And we all went home, and with this ringing in my mind, I began to do some of the, the homework for the week. And plot your, plot your course, set your waypoints before you leave harbour. And he rephrased that the next week, because he said to us, You'll go out maybe in daylight, but you might come back when it's night. You'll go out on a calm sea, but you may come back when the storm. You'll go out knowing where you're going, but you'll come back maybe not knowing where you're going. So plot your course and set your waypoints. And waypoints are certain things like a lighthouse or a wreck or a hilltop or a, a boy floating in the sea and you plot your course, this is very interesting, isn't it? You're enjoying this. <laughs> you plot your course so that you know exactly where you're going, so that when you turn round, you'll come back. So the next time you leave St. Peterport, going out to sea, remember to set your course so you know where you're going so you can come back safely. That's what the man was saying. When I read this scripture, I thought, God has a way of plotting our course. God has a way of taking us somewhere safely and bringing us back again. God has a way of shaping our destiny and setting us into a position where we don't fail because he never leaves us and never forsakes us. He's our captain and he plots our course 
And what you go through are not mistakes. They're parts of the journey. And what you go through sometimes are very rocky seas and they're rough and they're turmoil. And you don't quite understand what God is doing and where you're going. But he's got it all in control. And he takes you out and he brings you back safely and he puts you in a place where your destiny is secure. They had been in captivity for years, a generation. People had lived and died, not knowing Jerusalem. Babies had been born, not knowing their heritage. And they had to relearn that all the way through, the good times and the bad times, all the way through, God was there. Historically, God was plotting their course, charting their future, bringing them out and taking them back, giving them a hope and a future because God was in total control of their destiny. So here they are building a city, making a new nation, starting again from scratch, plotting a course for the future and enjoying the fact that God was with them. And then they found the words of Scripture and they began to read the Scriptures. They began to read the words and they began to sob because God's there all the time. God never leaves them, never forsakes them, takes them on, leads them to a destiny and They're thrilled with it. And then Nehemiah says, don't weep. This is a sacred day. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the historical setting. What about the philosophical setting? God has a way of painting pictures. Not just words. Words are in the scripture. You can read them. But there's a picture behind it all. There's a colour. And there's a, a description that goes beyond just the words. God was showing them something of their destiny. There's a platform in the middle of the city street, a wooden platform. High on the platform is Ezra, the scribe. He's opening the scrolls, filthy, dusty, found in the rubble. He's peeling them back. He's standing up in the midst of the people, high above everybody, and he's reading the word of God. In the beginning, God created the world. And he's describing this wonder of creation, A created God who writes things and cares for us and loves us and he's reading it to the people and they sob. They begin to realise that God is there. They've been in captivity, they've been lost, they've been without hope, they've been without a future, they've been without a nation of people that were abandoned and, and now they're back home. And there's the word of God being read and the presence of God is beginning to fill the square and the people... Thousands of them are gathered around and they begin to feel for the first time the presence of God. And they begin to realise God is there. And they begin to sob and cry and reach out to something beyond them. And for the first time in their experience, after a generation, they're in touch with an almighty God who puts his arms around them and loves them. It's a beautiful picture of sacredness and completeness and, and wholesomeness. God caring for them and loving them. He's there all the time. The presence of God makes the difference. For many years I used to conduct services in Belgium, sometimes twice a year, and we would bring all the leaders of the churches together in Belgium on the Friday, Saturday and the Sunday, and we would have really great times of teaching. went on for years and years. And on one occasion in the Brussels Bible School, where we were meeting every, every time we met, There was downstairs a a kind of restaurant, they called it the refectory. 
And the process was that you would go down and you would pick up your food and you would go to the hatch, be served, go and sit down anywhere with anybody and have your meal. Every time I went, the menu was exactly the same. Belgian meatballs and rice. Every time. Year after year after year. I think it was the only thing the cook in the Bible college can put together. Flemish meatballs and rice. Anybody from Belgium here? If there is, this happened in France. (laughs) And we pick up the meatballs and the rice and you would gather together and just sit down and eat your meal and talk to anybody that was near. And right in front of me on this one occasion was a very well-dressed man. And I found out that he was a policeman. He was the highest ranking police officer in Antwerp and he was the second highest ranking police officer in the whole of the Kingdom of Belgium. And as we were eating our Flemish meatballs and rice, it got quite interesting because he started talking about DNA, as you do when you're having meatballs and rice. And how we got onto DNA, I have no idea, and how the conversation expanded, I have no idea. But we began to talk about this forensic science. And he said, you think, and the world thinks, that DNA science, forensic science, is to discover crimes that were committed 30, 40 years ago and cold cases are opened and they can go back and they can trace through DNA the perpetrator of the crime and bring him to justice. And he said, but it's more than that. He said, DNA science and forensic technology can discover the presence of anybody, anywhere, at any time. So I said, well, how? And he said, well, everywhere you go, you leave a trace behind. Everywhere you go, every time you go anywhere, you leave something of your presence behind. And he began to describe what happens. And he said, you shed pieces of skin, dead hair, skin cells, all kinds of things drop off of you wherever you go. And you leave it behind. For instance, you came in here at half past ten, and some of you have been standing with your hands raised, and you've clapped, and you've sung, And bits of you have dropped off while you've been doing that. (laughs) All over the floor. Some of you have coughed and sneezed. All over the person in front of you. And and all these bits of DNA have been floating in the atmosphere and they've fallen on the floor. And you'll leave the building and you'll go home and someone will say, wasn't that a great meeting? And you could say, oh, I wasn't there that day. But a forensic scientist can discover the trace of your presence. A forensic scientist can come in here, put a grid on the floor, pick up little tiny bits of DNA, hairs and skin cells, they'll find it, and they can match it to your presence because you leave a trace behind. And that got into my thinking and into my mind and I began to dwell on that for a while and I flew home at the end of the conference and uh, teaching seminar and I came home and I thought about we leave a trace behind. Whatever we do, wherever we go, we leave a trace of our presence. And I thought, if we do that, God does that. Wherever we meet with him, he's there. We say daft things like, we're coming into his presence at half past ten. Well, where were you at 10.29? We don't come in and out of God's presence. He never leaves us and never forsakes us. What we mean is we're corporately gathering at half past ten. We're corporately meeting together. And when we do that, he comes. Where two or three are gathered, he comes. 
And the manifest presence of God comes upon us. We felt it this morning very strongly while we were worshipping the Lord. He comes. And if we leave a trace behind, he leaves his DNA behind. God's presence filling the atmosphere, adorning us with beauty. Because as we praise him, we're beautified. We look better when we praise the Lord. And there's something wonderful and precious about being in God's presence. I began to think about that and I wrote some stuff. It's in one of the books I wrote. God's DNA present with us constantly. And it's a beautiful picture. You can't get away from God. David said, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, he's there. When you go through sadness, he's there. When you go through suffering and trial, he's there. When you go through the worst moments of your life, he's there. The good days and the bad days. The happy days and the sad days. The mounting experiences, the valley experiences. You can't get away from the presence of God. His DNA fills the atmosphere. And we need to remember that when we're going through trouble and trial. His DNA is all around us. He leaves a trace of his presence wherever he goes. And Ezra's reading the word of God. And the people are gathered together. And they're listening to the creative works of an almighty God who loved them, has led them and guided them. He's going to be their God and they're his people and there's this unity of bonding comes together and they begin to cry, they begin to worship, they begin to sense his presence and Nehemiah gets onto the platform and he says, stop weeping, eat some good food because the joy of the Lord is our strength. His DNA is all around us and we keep our eyes upon him The joy floods in. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In the blackest of times and the weakest of moments, we heard a testimony about bereavement there this morning. In the worst times, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's a beautiful philosophical picture. Lastly, there's a theological concept to this. And we need to learn this. And this is where maybe it begins to touch us personally. The theological concept is very simple. Historically, they were God's people. Philosophically, there's a picture of his glory shining around them. But theologically, there's a truth. And it's not just to put on a plaque in the wall. It's not just to hang in your home to greet somebody. As a verse out of context, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a theological truth to what God is speaking to us. Whenever you touch his presence... And whatever experience you're going through, and however hard it might be, and however dark the days might be, there is something bigger and greater than we will ever understand. There's a theological concept that goes into eternity. There's a theological truth that is our fountain and our foundation. There's a theological truth that is our platform that we live on and that we base our life upon, and everything stems from that. And the concept is God will never leave us, never forsake us, and he is our joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not transient, doesn't come and go. You know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I feel good today. And you think that's joyful. What about the next day when you wake up and you feel lousy? 
What about when it's raining and you miss the bus? What about when things have turned against you and it's not quite such a good day and we think sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad? No, we're not. It has nothing to do with a transient sense of superficial happiness. There's a foundational joy that is rooted in our spirit, that is our standing foundation. It's the rock on which we build our lives. God's joy is our strength. It's more than happiness. It's more than something superficial. It's a theological concept that I am in joy all the time. I might weep for a while. I might be sad for a while. I might be unhappy for a while. But there's a deep sense of joy, like a fountain, that wells up from within us. And when we just look above our circumstances and beyond the immediate horizon and we can see what we cannot see, and we get a glimpse of glory, this great big bubble of joy rises within us and it becomes our strength. We're standing on a platform of joy. God's presence. Not happiness, not superficial, a theological concept that says, I'm happy and joyful even when it's bad. Even when it's sad. Paul Hudson and I, our missions director, we were in in Spain earlier this year and we were visiting some of our church plants and in Spain there's suddenly a a breath of new church plants starting and we had this plan of going to two or three of them just to visit the pastor and his wife and the leaders. No meetings, just, just dropping in to visit them, see the buildings. And we turned up on this one occasion, the last of the day, and the pastor and his wife and his little boy were there and they had planned a really important meeting. They got a PowerPoint all planned and prepared about the building. It was a garage, run down, derelict. They'd painted and worked and restored and they'd made this very beautiful building and they had a chart of the journey all on PowerPoint and all plugged in, ready to go, a great big screen, tea and coffee, chairs out so we can sit down and watch the story and it didn't work. Nothing on the screen. They pushed and pulled and changed wires and unplugged and rebooted and nothing happened, nothing on the screen. So I said, well, look, why don't we just stand around and look at the laptop? We'll just come around this small screen. So we all go to the back of the building, got off the chairs, sat, stood there watching the little presentation on a small screen. It took about 45 minutes watching the journey. And while we were doing that, the little boy, aged seven, was standing totally still mesmerised by the screen, listening to all that we were talking about. Seven years old, stood stock still for 45 minutes. When I was seven years old, I was running all over the place. Couldn't stand still for a second. But he was seven years old and he was rooted to the spot. And I got more interested in him than the story on the screen. And I looked at him and I thought, he's, he's listening to this and he's taking it all in. And he's receiving a story and he's learning about the Lord and he's learning about church and the journey and he was just standing, listening to the whole thing going on. And when we finished, I said, can we, can we pray? And we stood in a circle and I said, I want to pray for this little boy. And as I began to pray, I felt God say to me that he was like Samuel and that he was growing up in God and like Samuel, he was in the temple And Hannah, his mother, used to bring him a new coat every year because he was growing in stature but growing in the spirit too. And I began to prophesy about this little boy 
laid hands upon him, prayed that God would give him a prophetic mantle, that he would become like Samuel, and that he would grow in grace and have a great ministry. And when I finished praying, mum and dad, the pastor and his wife, they're in tears. Tears are flowing all over their face. They were from Ecuador, Spanish-speaking, but from Ecuador, planting a church not far from Lorette de Mar. I said, what, why are you crying? And they said, well, you don't know the story. And they said, when we were in Ecuador, we were told we would never have a child. We did all the tests, we were told that it would be impossible, so we thought about adopting and all kinds of things, and a man came to our church, and he prayed over us, and he prayed that God would give them a son who would become a prophet and that this son would grow in grace and become a child of promise. And a few years went by and they conceived. And this little boy was born. Then they moved from Ecuador to Spain and they start planting this church and we turn up when he's seven years old and I prophesied exactly the same thing that they'd had in Ecuador years ago, eight or nine years ago. Exactly the same thing. And I said, I just believe that that's a word from God and he's going to be a Samuel. And they said, well, you don't even know the rest of the story. Because when he was born, he was a child of promise, and we called him in Spanish a certain name, which means translated Samuel. And Samuel means child of God, or son of the Lord. And they said, God's had his hand upon this boy all through the years. And we've had troubles and trials. We've moved from Ecuador to Spain, We were told that we would never conceive. We've gone through the heartache of all that journey and nothing really has gone right until now. And now we're building a church and we're now watching this young lad called Samuel rising in grace and I turn up and I prophesy exactly the same thing as eight or nine years ago and here's a little boy growing in grace. God's brought them through a journey. Through tears, through heartache, through their difficulties, through their translation from one country to another, called them into ministry, planting a church, struggling away, building a church in the northern parts of Spain, and, and God's there through it all, all the time, charting their course, setting their waypoints, bringing them to their destiny, shaping their future, undergirding their whole ministry with a sense of joy. The joy of the Lord is their strength. And maybe, I just sat there this morning thinking as we were worshipping the Lord together, I just sat there thinking, I wonder what we're going through behind the curtains. I wonder what's happening where no one sees. And we come into church on a Sunday morning, we put the mask on and someone says, how are you? We're fine. Bless you, thank you, we're great. And you're falling apart inside. And no one knows the journey, and no one knows the hassle, and no one knows what you're going through. And, and sometimes there's a chink in the curtain, and just a little bit of it comes out, and we pray. But God wants you to know this morning that there's a theological concept that is beyond the natural beyond anything that we've ever learned or understood, beyond anything that we can imagine and comprehend. There's a platform of joy that we stand on 
And the heartaches are there because that's life. And the problems come because that's life. You don't get inoculated against trouble and trial when you get saved. There's no vaccination that keeps you away from heartache. That's life. But God's provided a way of escape. And he's provided a truth for us to build our lives upon. And has created a platform for us to stand on that will take us all through the choppy waters of our life by setting a course and bringing us to our destiny. And through it all, there's a word that comes strongly, constantly. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We've got to look beyond what we can see and beyond the troubles and trials that beset us and grasp something of God's word this morning. Not a simple word, maybe a strange word, but a word that carries something. The joy of the Lord is undergirding solidly, constantly, and it's your strength. It's what you stand upon, what you build your life upon. It's the hope that you have, it's the destiny that you have. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And I just want to pray that over you, over the families, over the children, over the leaders and members of the church, over John and Angie, that whatever you're going through and whatever the journey is, that there'll be this deep sense of abiding joy that will always be your strength. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that it comes piercingly with truth through the veil of our lives, through the shadows and heartaches that sometimes we carry. Your presence makes a difference. And the foundation cornerstone is the strength of God, which is joy. And I just pray over the congregation today, Father, you know every single one here. You know the journey, the twists and turns, the good days, the bad days. You know the heartaches that sometimes we carry, the disappointments. You know, Lord, the seemingly unanswered prayers that we pray. You know the disappointments that sometimes that we have when we we don't see clearly what's happening around us. And Father, I just pray into that this morning. I just declare over this congregation that joy will be their strength. Through it all. Through the hard times and the bad times. And I just pray that they'll sense something beyond the natural. And they'll see something that they've never seen. A foundation cornerstone of incredible joy. Not superficial happiness that comes and goes, but a rock bed of joy that is the strength. So we pray that, Father, into the heart of this church, from all the members and attenders to the leaders. Father, I cover them today with a sense of joy, joyfulness, as a mantle. I pray into that, Father, in in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for John and Angie. Father, I just pray that your hand will be upon them and that, Lord, you will cover them like a mantle in their home, in their family and in the church. Father, I thank you for them, for their years of faithfulness, serving you, 
through all the troubles and trials and all the difficulties that they've ever faced, they've been faithful. And Lord, you bless faithfulness, you reward faithfulness. You don't reward us for our preaching or our singing, but you reward us for our faithfulness. And I just pray that the faithfulness of their lives will have a a major sense of reward today, of joy, deep, abiding sense of joy. And I pray a prophetic mantle upon them. I pray that, Lord, you'll give them words and insight and instruction. I pray that, Lord, when they stand before your people to minister, they'll they'll minister out of a heart full Mm. of prophetic wisdom and insight. Words that are beyond the natural. Mm. I pray that you'd cover them and bless Mm. them and use them. And I pray that this Mm. church will go into a place where it's never been Mm. and see things in God that it's never seen. And rise to a place where it will affect not just this area, but the whole of the islands. Pray that, Lord, there'll be streams of fountains of water and life and energy that will flow out of this very ministry that will touch the islands and cause there to be a sense in which there's a renewal of your blessing and your glory. So bless them, Father. Keep your hand upon them and their home and their family. In Jesus' name. And I pray that, Lord, today your word might be living. It might breathe upon us. Pray that, Lord, the entrance of your word will bring light and life. And I pray that, Lord, we'll, we'll go from here today with the word of God ringing in our spirit. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Because, Father, we pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much, Jeff. That was fantastic. Uh, I just love that sense. You know, joy is such a vital commodity. And I, I just felt you share that, actually, that I just felt maybe someone here this morning, and I think one of the, the, the kind of word I felt somebody like disappointment. You've had a kind of a kind of disappointment that kind of just kind of logs there in your heart. And so, if you need prayer for that, I'm sure Jeff will be around. If, if you need prayer of a just that sense of disappointment and a promise or something that's not materialised and kind of a, a disappointment there. I just felt today the kind of God wants to kind of lift that from your heart today. So if you need prayer, then I'm just there. Thank you for listening to this free download from Delance Elam Church. For more downloads or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceelam.co.uk. 